Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM and in person with Paul. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. And here I interview authors about their latest novels. Now, about a year ago, I recorded an interview with my Crime Time FM colleague, Victoria Selman. And that was for the UK launch of Truly Darkly Deeply. This is that episode. But in honour of the US publication of the novel on the 27th of June, I've revised the introduction. I mean, we're aware that Crime Time FM has hundreds of listeners in America across at least 35 states. And if you're listening now from somewhere in that vast and wonderful country, welcome and thank you very much for being with us. Victoria Selman is the author of the Zeba McKenzie Criminal Profiler series, all of which were Amazon chart bestsellers. But Truly Darkly Deeply is an altogether more literary beast. The twists that fans love are here, of course, but this heart-pounding story of the daughter of a serial killer has much more psychological depth and addresses that fascination in society for serial killers, but noting that the victims and survivors are what really matters in a story like this. This is a gripping, pacey novel that really resonates. And so, as I said a year ago, it represents a leap forward for Victoria Selman as a literary thriller writer. My first question is about what it's like to be an author just a few days away from the publication of a new novel. And I'm sure that the same nerves, anticipation and excitement will accompany the American release. Truly Darkly Deeply has been praised by Patricia Cornwall, S.J. Watson, Chris Whittaker, Sarah Pimbra, I could go on. And today, the 27th of June, Victoria is doing an online special Barnes & Noble event with Jeffrey Deaver, another really distinguished fan of her novel. And that's at 3pm Eastern Standard Time. So if you get a chance, you can still catch that, but of course that will only apply if you're listening to this immediately, on release. It's free and available around the world. In the UK, Truly Darkly Deeply is a Sunday Times bestseller and a Richard and Judy pick. So again, for our American listeners, here's a little introduction from Tuppence Middleton, who did the audio version of the novel. He's a monster. Hated, reviled, by everyone, but you. Truly Darkly Deeply by Victoria Selman is a mind-blowing, unputdownable serial killer thriller of a very different kind, Perfect for all fans of Mindhunter, Criminal Minds, and Girl A. Out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. Hello, and welcome to Crime Time FM, Victoria. A bit funny, but uh, you're a guest author today. I know, very strange to be on this side of the table, Paul. <laughs> it is. Well, look, we're going to dive in straight away anyway. When people listen to this, um, truly darkly, deeply, it may already be published. But as we speak, there's a few days to go until publication. What's this period like for you? Well, I was just going to say, can you hear my teeth chattering down the line? <laughs> <laughs> it's nerve wracking, Paul. It's funny. You know, I've had um, three books out already. As you know, I wrote a series before Truly Dark Deeply. Yes, right. So it's not like it's my first novel. And yet in many ways, it feels like it is. I was um, a digital first author previously, and this mm. is my first traditionally published deal. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? Um, so it's a very, very different experience. And I'm not a debut, but I feel like a debut. I know what to expect, and I have no idea what to expect. It's it's a tale of two cities in that respect, I suppose. <laughs> the best and the worst of times. <laughs> yeah, I suppose this is a sort of um, maximum imposter syndrome time for authors, isn't it? Yes, it is. That's exactly what it is. And it's funny, <laughs> until you get those first reviews coming through, even just from other authors, you know, reading the advanced copies, mm. you don't actually know how the book's going to go. Whatever people have told you before, it's still 
you know, it's everything to play for and everything to lose. So it's, it's terribly daunting. But the reaction so far has been brilliant, to be fair, hasn't it? I've been really, I've been really, really flattered. Yeah, we've had some great endorsements for some incredible people, some real heroes of mine. So, yeah, yeah. yeah you certainly have. Let's step back a little bit then. Um, how about why are you so fascinated with serial killers? Oh, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Maybe I'm just dark and twisted inside. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know you a bit, so I can say I don't think it's honestly that. Well, I don't know. I mean, serial killers have this charming <laughs> face, this facade, don't they? So you never know. Um, why am I fascinated? I think it goes back to probably why all crime writers write crime. We're all fascinated, aren't we, with what makes a monster? What yes, makes yeah. people behave in the way that they do? Um, and for me, the idea of a serial killer killing stranger after stranger until they're caught is extraordinary because you don't have the normal motive you don't have jealousy or monetary reasons for killing somebody or whatever reasons people might come up with it's literally purely about bloodlust and that's something so alien that um it's it's just extraordinary so so i have that fascination but more recently my fascination is actually broaden so if you imagine a stone I suppose landing in a pond and the ripples circling around you have the serial killer in the middle and the psyche of the serial killer that's fascinating yeah right but also and I think this is a subject I touch in truly darkly deeply certainly I've tried to is the idea that what the serial killer does doesn't just affect him and his immediate victim but there's also a ripple effect of victims so in truly darkly deeply it's actually told through the eyes of his inverted commas daughter so it's the idea of a serial killer's legacy yes, and how right. it impacts on her. And of course, that then goes to the wife, the yeah. friends, the, the the questions you ask yourself, how can I ever trust again? I had no idea that this person I was living with had these, these urges. Could those urges have been directed at me? What could I have done differently? Am I somehow culpable? Mm. How, how do you deal with that? So that's that's another area of my fascination as well, a more recent area. <laughs> no, that yeah, it is. And that, that's really interesting because that's truly darkly deeply. And that's what we'll get into. Yeah. I wonder, though, I just wanted to look at the idea of the step change mm. from the Zeba McKenzie thrillers mm. to writing truly darkly deeply, which I believe to be a, you know, a really very different kind of book. Mm. Did it feel different in the writing or, or for you? What was different about it? That's a really good question. Gosh, you're coming up with some good questions, Paul. I should be impressed. I haven't practice. started yet. <laughs> I haven't started yet. <laughs> oh, hell, get myself on my toes here. Um, yeah, it did feel very different. It's different. I think my series novels were more traditionally structured, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So they're profile so there's still the element of, mm. course, of the psyche that's, that's something I find fascinating. But at the end of the day, they're all hunts for the killer. Whereas in this novel, it's much more emotional, it has a more emotional platform. Right. So although you don't know whether the character, Matty, in this case, actually committed the crimes that he's in prison for, mm-hmm. it's, not a, it's not a hunt for a killer. It's, yeah, it no. goes deeper. It's um, Like I said, it's the ripple effects of the crimes on the people that are left behind. Um, and in that sense, it has more of an emotional, both emotional impact, but also was more emotional writing it. Um, and here's a corny thing to say, but my dog died halfway through writing it and I was distraughtful I was absolutely distraught she was um she was my baby I mean I had it before my real babies um and I felt this terrible sense of loss for two months I couldn't actually write I had to hit pause Mm. Um, and I think I don't know if anyone else would pick up on this reading back on it but for me when I look back on the pages there is also a sense of loss that comes through them Mm -hmm. which of course is echoed in my protagonist dealing with her loss the loss of the man she thought she knew 
and the loss of the life she had. And I wonder if, if that was an impact as well. No, I'm sure it was because being a writer, obviously, it's all about digging into those wells, finding those feelings and mm. representing them, especially in particularly dark material like this. Yes. I say this, though, because I think in all honesty, this is an inspired book. In this, this is a leap up, right? Any yeah. writer goes and writes three books. The fourth book will be better in some ways simply by virtue of learning the skill and everything else. This yeah. doesn't feel like that. I suppose I'm trying to get at behind what you just said. Did it feel inspired? Were you driven with this one? Yeah, I was completely driven. And in fact, it's interesting. I mean, I plan. It's more literary, isn't it, for a start? Yes, I think I would. Yes, I think it possibly is. Um, Because maybe it's more psychological and more emotional. Mm. And so maybe that produces a different feel on the page. But um, yeah, it did. It did feel different. I wrote it in a gallop. I can't tell you. It was like I couldn't. Mm. I mean, I've I've told you when Maggie died, obviously I hit pause. But it. (laughs) have a guess. How long do you think it took me to write that book? I have. Careful what you say now, haven't you? (laughs) No, no, no. Well, I kind of think I understand because it felt like it was driven. So it kind of it feels like this was coming in the way you tell the story. It feels like it's coming very naturally and and in a flow. And I want to pick apart that later, actually, as we go along in the interview. But it does feel very much. So you're going to say you did it very, very quickly. I did it so quick. For me, it was very quick. It was written, uh, a pause aside, but if you put all the time together in about two and a half months. Wow. And I I literally, my poor husband and children, (laughs) I would go to sleep thinking about this book. I would wake up thinking about it in the middle of the night. I would get up in the morning. I was homeschooling them at the same time. This was during lockdown. Yes, of course. Right. So their maths really suffered. (laughs) (laughs) With me as a teacher as well, of course, my maths is rubbish. But um, yeah, I was very, very... I like your geography. Oh, God, yeah. Well, you better explain this joke. Thank you very much. This is um, He's referring listeners to my embarrassing stint at Crime Fest when we were driving up. I was driving up from London with Sarah Saltoon in the car and I nearly ended up in, where was it, Watford or something? <laughs> well, well anywhere age. north except Bristol if it hadn't right, been well, for Sarah Saltoon. Yeah. yeah, I mean, goodness knows what I'd ended up. God knows. Um, but yes, so geography and maths are not my strong suit. <laughs> so I got you back there for mentioning when I forgot to record the session that we did one day. So, but uh, no, okay. To get back to the book, which is really the point. Um, tell us about truly darkly deeply. Then I'll tell you about it. That's another open-ended question, isn't it? Um, it gosh, is. Where to start? So let me tell you what it's about. Then for people yes, who don't know. So it's um, it's just what I how I describe it is it's a serial killer's legacy told through the eyes of his daughter who 20 years after his incarceration still can't be sure whether he's actually guilty. Mm. And the book opens with her receiving a letter from him from prison saying he's dying and he wants to meet. And I suppose the dramatic question is, will the truth set her free or bury her deeper? Mm. Because for her whole growing period of growing up from when he was put in prison till now, this is, I can't remember now, is it 15 or so years later? Yeah. um, Yeah, 20. she's, She's, been racked with this guilt was he unfairly convicted was he actually innocent because he's always protested his innocence and actually that's something the book is exploring it gets the reader to try and piece that together mm-hmm. as well um and if he wasn't innocent if he was guilty she's still ra- racked with guilt because had she realized sooner what he was doing could lives have been saved even though she was a child could she have done something could mm-hmm. she have stopped more people being killed so she struggled with this. It's a, it's almost a coming of age narrative, I think, as much as a serial. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I got that. It's almost like it's a coming of age, but this is the coming of age nobody deserves. You know, this is the coming yeah. of age where everything in life gets destroyed, and then it's a yes. question of how much you can put it back together again. 
That's so we're talking exactly about it. yeah how do you pick yourself up from something yeah yeah so it is sophie's story why is it sophie's story why the daughter why the daughter i'm fascinated by the fact no let's not say fascinated i'm intrigued by the fact that you have a lot of books out there that look at this subject from the point of view of the wife i mean we don't need right. to pick names off shelves we can all think of no, no. but it's oftentimes the case that you look at the partner and mm. i think that's because of the constant question how could they not have known if you're that close to somebody how could you not have known that's what they were doing so it's interesting but it seems to me if i couldn't think of anything that had been penned from the point of viewpoint of a child right and i'm a mother so i guess that's a natural place mm. for me to look um what what and i constantly question myself as a mother what's what's the impact of what i do on my children so take that to the next level what's the yeah. impact of a serial killer well that is an interesting point because it does come down to that how much mm. do you tell them about the world yes and and then how much do you scare them if you tell them too much about yes, the world? And that, that of course is something that the, the novel plays a little bit with those kind of standard things that parents have to worry about but of yeah. course this isn't a standard relationship yes you're right because of course the the killer and at this point in the book people don't know who the killer is is targeting um women who look exactly like sophie's mother yes so she of course has that fear um and the mother is downplaying those fears but of course the reader and sophie herself will be thinking yeah but <laughs> they do look like you and are you just saying that to make me feel better I know, and that's, yeah. that's part of the atmosphere of the book. Mm. You got Tuppence Middleton, or you're lucky enough to get Tuppence Middleton to narrate the audio, which is, is great. Well, I'm um, a huge fan, as you and I have talked about before. Yes, indeed. And you also put out your own social media thing where you did the first, um, oh, the opening to the book. And yeah. I'm not looking for a comparison here. Don't worry. I'm not, <laughs> not suggesting good, that for one good. minute. Because <laughs> I am not a professionally trained actor. I just wanted to mention that Tuppence <laughs> Middleton did it. And, and the other yeah. thing, though, is that first bit that you did narrate for yourself. Yes. Explain the significance of Sophie's opening there and the kite and the sparrow. And I won't ask you to go through the whole book doing this. I'm just curious about how you bring the reader in with that. However, well, in a way, I can't answer the whole question, can I? Because, of course, that letter right. at the beginning is so strongly linked to, to what happens at the end, I suppose. Uh, so you avoided that trap then? Um, but the kite, I guess it's an omen. It's the site, it's a foreshadowing, isn't it? It's mm. the idea of of innocence being corrupted. So sorry, we should probably explain again for the listeners. Um, this is a letter to my protagonist at the opening, and she's um remembering the uh, a kite. She's watching a kite, but a bird's a prey circle in the garden. Of course, she's never seen a kite before in, in London. I mean, who does see them in London? Mm. And she's watching fascinated out of the window. And then this kite pounces on a sparrow and rips it apart on her trampoline where she practices her tuck dumps. So literally, it's this idea of a dark presence landing in your world unexpected and the havoc it can produce as a metaphor. But actually, what you don't know, Paul, is it's something that happened to a friend of mine. So she ah. also was um, watching a kite and she watched the sparrow being ripped apart on the trampoline. So I didn't completely make it up, actually. Oh, right. and it no, just, I just took it as a metaphor. For well, this. it is a metaphor. It's absolutely a metaphor. And you're right. But it, this was years ago. She told me the story and it just stuck in my head because, I mean, it was horrific. And she said all that was left. I mean, it, it, this is a horrible image. I hope nobody's eating when they listen to this. But all, <laughs> all that was left were these little legs on the trampoline. And I just thought, oh, my God. I mean, it's such a visual image, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah. And of course, in the book, the visual image is something that my serial killer plays on. So like many serial killers, he's he's he plays on it like Dharma, for example. He was, he yes. was very handsome and very charming. 
this character, whether or not he's a serial killer, we won't say, will we? Um, but he, he plays on it and he uses yes, that yes. to lure his victims. Well, let's talk about Matty then. Mm. Um, Matty, the killer, or is he the killer? Or is he? Yes. <laughs> he does deny committing the murders, though. That's, that's the part. But, and it, of course, it all stems from that and his actions. But as yeah. we said, this, this story is more about the impact on Sophie yes. and Amelia Rose, her mother. And it's their story, really. How is it possible for somebody to be a killer like that and to mask that from their family? Well, ask Ted Bundy, ask mm. um, the BTK, ask. So, I mean, there are so many, aren't there? And in fact, we're actually airing after this uh, this interview a, a very exciting interview with one of my absolute heroes, Mark Allshaker, who, as you know, is the author of Mindhunter. Yes, he certainly would have very much to say on this subject. Um, fascinating guy. Um, but it's normally, normally serial killers are actually very disorganized individuals. They're socially inept, which is why they kill. Mm. Um, but actually, sometimes they're very... They, they they go the other way and and so it does happen and that's why those serial killers are able to mask what they're doing from yes. their spouses and their families and that so, ability to cop, uh, sort of compartmentalize is, is scary isn't it the thought that they can do that but well you know what you say compartmentalize but what he mm. say, mark Olshake, is no they don't they are always and at every single moment thinking always playing a game always right. thinking, always mm. thinking about the kill they are beyond mm. obsessed so actually, in fact, we had this conversation on the show um, that actually the relationship even with the spouse is very, very interesting. And it's part of the facade. Obviously, it's a cover for them. But even the spouse that they choose is, is very relevant. So often mm. they will choose somebody that is socially inadequate themselves. Um, and that's, that's because they want to be in control. Well, that is interesting then, because that's about how Sophie and her mother get drawn into this relationship. Mm. And it pretty much happens the way it would happen with anybody, really, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's like a case of lure of ice cream, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's amazing then how that you start to see things, and it doesn't go to whether he's a serial killer or not, but it does go to the kind of character he is. He's very charming. Mm. And then you see a little bit of control sleeping in and, uh, yeah. you know, manipulation. Yes. Mild abuse. Yes. And, of course, this divisiveness, that's, that's one of the clever yes. things, is to get the mother and daughter separated. Yes. Try and have them working against each other so that they're not thinking clearly. Exactly. Because as we know, serial killers are all about power and control. But of course, not all people who are about power and control are serial killers. So again, you could still be one person, but not the other, if mm. that makes sense. No, it does make sense. Is it also something that feeds the other way? It's not just about him and what he brings. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about Sophie and she's got this absence of a father. Yes. And uh, if you look at Amelia Rose, you've got this absence of love. And we all want these things. It's almost as if there's a vacuum and an absence that makes us all vulnerable. I'm trying to say they're ordinary people. They're not, you know. But they are ordinary-ish. I mean, we all have areas of vulnerability, don't we? Mm. You're absolutely right. I'm reading about Manson at the moment, and that's exactly what he plays on. So he's drawing in girls who are not necessarily complete weirdos at all, mm. but they always have an area, of something in them that is needing. And that's what he's tapping into. And he, he does it brilliantly because he is a manipulator. And characters um, like Matty in my book, or again, Bundy is one that springs to mind, they would be masters at manipulating. Dharma, again, is, a, is another good example. He's mm. brilliant at tapping into what people want to hear. And, and that, of course, is how you're able to lure people in the first place. 
tell them what they yes, want to be able to get them to come with you. Yeah, get that trust. Mm. It starts with that basic. It's like a con man might give you your wallet back before he actually steals everything in your bank yes, account. Yes, but absolutely. It's all about gaining trust. Mm. That's absolutely right. So before we talk about Sophie in a little more detail, I'd like to look at her mother, Amelia Rose. And I, yeah. I don't want to give too much away in the story, but because there is a little danger of that here. When we talked about these issues we've just spoken about, a lot of this is about judgments people make. But after Matty is arrested, aside from those external pressures uh, from the outside, there's also this internal thing. What's she trying to face up to? I think it goes back to what we would all face up to, which is guilt. You would mm. always, I think anyone would have a, have a sense of guilt. Why didn't I know? What didn't I see? What could I have done? And I think you'd have to have no heart not to feel those things. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on and add Sophie back into the mix. Well, Amelia Rose and Sophie are both victims. Yes. Right. They're actually people who nobody considers as victims in the rush to judgment or uh, the desire for punishment that society is so keen on. But did you actually want the readers to confront that idea of, of Amelia Rose and guilt and Sophie as well? Um, exploring the idea of who and how they're victims, bearing in mind, of course, that when all the murders actually occurred, Sophie was a child. I'm thinking, what am I trying to get the reader to do? I think I'm getting the reader to put themselves in Sophie's position, to imagine yeah. that that's who they were. But also, I think you're right about the rush to judgment, because it's not just about how are they judging themselves, which is, of course, a you know, fundamental thread that runs through the book, but also, and not even just how society's judging them. So you have a, a scene where I think, actually, I think the mother's simply relating how she went into a supermarket and there were comments thrown. So society clearly judges. But also the feeling that they society has not to just to judge, but to punish the people even involved at the periphery. Yes. So you have, and children are often the most honest in many ways, aren't they? So at Sophie's school, once um, Matty is arrested, and it's interesting because actually the girls in her class, some who are her friends, actually had a crush on Matty, and he's gorgeous. And there's a scene where clearly they they think he's gorgeous and they liken him to one of the film stars of the time or whatever. Mm. Um, but then they circle in on her and they're hissing at her and there's a there's an altercation, I believe it was in the dining room. I can't remember how it was I read the book. But um where, oh yes, you're you're clearly like him. This is clearly where you get, you know, I think she lashes out Sophie when they they accuse her of something. Yes, right. And they say, Oh yes, you know, you're just like him. Very cruel. So it's this need to attribute blame and to pigeonhole. And I wonder if I wonder if we do it because it makes us feel safe. And I wonder if that's part of the fascination with serial killer books. They are the clearly delineated baddies. And mm. if we know who the baddies are in the world, we're safe because we can avoid them. The trouble is when we don't know, when, it, when we're not all Disney villains, we don't have horns on our heads when we're, when we're bad. So that's where the uh, uncomfortableness can creep in. And maybe that's where the rush to judgment comes as well. Mm. Judge so you're safe. It's that, it's that almost instinctive primal need almost to do yes. that that's interesting because that's where it gets when we're put inside sophie's head as mm. we are and we have to see it from her point of view we have to have a totally different perspective of something it's interesting as a reader to get drawn into that where you're on sophie's side whereas as we've said traditionally people are not on the side of family they don't consider the family of the murderer or possible murderer to be the one that they're actually concerned about do they that's interesting. I don't know if it's with a child. I don't know if society would necessarily automatically blame the child. Certainly the, the, the spouse they do. So you have, for example, the uh, 
Jerome Brudos, who was the shoe fetishist. Mm. Um, and he would have his wife um, buzz on the intercom of his garage right, where he was right. doing all sorts of awful things before she came in. And when he was finally caught, nobody could believe that she didn't know. I mean, mm. people literally didn't believe it. And they hounded her for it. Whether she knew or not, I don't know. Nobody, I don't think he had children, but nobody's ever hounded the children of, say, the Green River Killer. Or no, Peter right. Kay, for example. Um, so I don't know if there's a hounding as such, but there's certainly not a sympathy for them, is there? You don't go around feeling sorry for the child of the Green River Killer. No, maybe not at you, all. Yeah. But maybe you should. And I guess that's what the book is partly saying as well. These are victims too. Yes, I think it is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we, we get that because that's the point of Sophie's story. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. When you mentioned the school there, it made me think, you know, that um, there's a kind of salutary lesson just generally here as well, in the sense that um, we all go to school with people and we mm-hmm. don't know these stories. Yeah. You know, and it's frightening to think actually how many stories we don't know. And I know not everybody's father turns into a serial killer, but we do know that terrible things happen in the background and we just yeah. are completely unaware of them. But also how quickly, I mean, taking it onto the playgrounds, I mean, bullies, for example, you always say to your children, they're being bullied. Oh, well, you know, they're, it's coming from a place of weakness. They're very unhappy. They're having a bad time. And, you know, as the child, I don't give a damn. <laughs> but, um, but actually, it's true. What is that person who is bullying suffering? What are they going through? And we don't yes. often stop to think of that, do we? We just no, we don't. On the surface or how they directly affect us, I guess. Mm. How was it then with, with you and Sophie, um, who she is the heart of the story? How did you get the character? How did you get that voice? Did it come naturally? You know what? It's funny. I wrote a book before this one that actually I put in the bin. It wasn't. It, it was not the right, right. book. And that book, and it's an example of how different books write themselves or don't, as in the case of the Binge novel. Um, with that other book, I had, have you ever heard of a character thesaurus? Yes. Yes, well, I had not, but I bought right. this character thesaurus and it had all these different characteristics and what type of person would have them. So, for example, if you were from a such and such a home, you were likely to display this, this and this. Right. So this other Binge book, I was busy making notes and maps and everything else, and it just didn't quite flow. I never quite got the voice right, I felt. With Sophie, it was the weirdest thing, Paul, because I just, right from the start, I could, this is going to sound so naff, but I could feel her. I just, I didn't have to overly think how she would react in a situation, Mm. how she would feel. I just almost automatically knew. I don't mean that I was channeling the voice or any, any nonsense like that, but I could just really put myself in the situation and it didn't, it didn't overly feel yeah, it didn't feel like I needed to get the voice. The voice just sort of came. And that was why I suppose it was such a joy to write as well. Yeah, no, I, I did. I kind of assumed that that would be the answer because it does come across that way. And then, of course, you have to build the other characters and the rest of the story around that. Um, so the other thing about Sophie's story, though, is it is told from the perspective of Sophie as an adult. Yeah. And I just wonder, there's well, two reasons maybe for that. Perhaps it's one is actually getting some understanding of the events that happened that you don't have as a child. Yes. But the other one, of course, is it's all based on trauma, but mm. it, and trauma takes time to work its mm. way through. Is that where you were going with that? Let's say I was, because that's very clever. I should, I should take that on board. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I was doing. It's actually, as you know, it's told obviously through two voices. You've got the child, Sophie, and also the adult. Yes. But the adult is um, reflective. So actually, I was talking to my good friend, Dom Nolan, about this. And we were ch- the challenge of writing a child's voice, because if you want to um, comment on what's happening and it's purely the child's voice, you're very restricted by vocabulary and mindset and everything else. Yes, of course. 
So actually to bring an adult's perspective in and then to have mm-hmm. it more as a retrospective means you can you can consider more what you're seeing mm-hmm. and you don't have to worry in the same way about dumbing down language and not flagging things up. But at the same time, it also means that you cannot see everything if that's what you choose. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book, and I hope it's come across, is for the reader to perceive certain things that maybe Sophie has missed or or maybe in the context of what yes. they know adult Sophie has experienced. They're like, oh, that yes. makes sense. In a way that yes. child Sophie wouldn't put two and two together, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, no, it does. It makes perfect sense. I see what you mean. There are incidents that happen in the house mm. and she sees them one way and it sounds yeah. perfectly innocent because as a child, she isn't recognizing the danger or what's going on in those scenes. Mm. Mm. But of course, we are as yes, the reader. We are. Exactly. And as an adult, of course, she has to re-examine those things and start to think about them herself in that kind of yeah, context. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the uncomfortableness hopefully comes across as well, as sort of the tension. And it's yes, not why didn't I see it like that? If it's so obvious to you. As, and we, we all have this, don't we? I mean, Which, of course, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, I was just, I don't know about you, but I, I mean, certain relationships, toxic friendships, I mean, is the mm. obvious example, you know, when you've, when you've left those behind and looking back or, or bad boyfriend, girlfriend relationships, whatever, you're like, oh my God, how could I not see that then? How could I not see I was being played or I was this or I was that? Whereas at the time you're so immersed in it, of course you don't see it. So, no, it's very, it's very true. Relationships that lasted too long and you just think that's a year I wasted there. That could have just, yes, yes. No, we should have realized way, way before that it wasn't going to work. Yeah, you absolutely. want to shake your past self, don't you? Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no good. Nostalgia and looking back and that's, that's no good. Yeah. It's no good. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about memory and perception, mm. because I think these are crucial in the book. They're themes in the novel. That, that's mm. it. There are multiple narratives inside the story that continue to be multiple narratives. Let me explain a little bit for people. I think one is, for instance, there's a public view, which we talked about, and this is the approbation that you get from people about what's happening and how they decide who's guilty and who isn't guilty. Um, And then you've got things like Matty denies it, and there are people who believe that Matty is telling the truth when Matty denies it. So that's another sort of strand. Mm -hmm. But the crucial element is is Sophie's story and Amelia Rose's stories, and... Mm -hmm. The readers are weighing in with these. Can you tell us a little bit about their aspect, their perspectives in that sense and memory and how that fits into the story? Mm. What I'm trying to get at is that in this perspectives, and we get Sophie's perspective and Amelia Rose's perspective, Matty's perspective and society's perspective, we, there's an element of truth in everything, perhaps, mm. and an mm. element of complete and utter nonsense in everything. I just want to try and get at, rather than that external view, how 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 their perspectives sort of feed into the story. Does that make sense? I think it does. And I think it's that old that old idea behind Gonga, isn't it? This idea that there's yes. a story, her story, and somewhere in the middle there's a truth. Is there even a truth? I don't know. Um, so I guess every every story, every viewpoint is valid and it, it's only presenting one part of the picture, if that makes sense. And I think um what what I've tried to do with what you call the reader's perspective. So again, people who haven't seen the book yet. It's you have these blog posts, don't you, and and podcast snippets and whatever. So commentary almost on what's happening. Mm. So you do get that extra viewpoint going in, and it's this idea that we never really know where we are with anything. And even when you have the full picture, do you ever really have the full picture? Right. 
which is what this multiple narratives does. Mm-hmm. You know, it leaves you with doubt in certain areas. Yes. So you're never yeah. quite comfortable about where the truth absolutely lies. Yes. Or, or even whether that's a concept at the end of the day, you know, is, is, there, is there such a thing as true? I mean, I, yeah, I remember um, I did this paper during my A-levels, a uh, special history paper. I mean, right. <laughs> what terrible title is that? But yeah, they were talking about historical truth. Is there such a thing? Can there ever be a one fundamental view? And I don't think there can. because No, they can't. No. Which um, I think is a validation for writing novels as well. You know, in a sense that there isn't that much difference. Any history is a narrative anyway. Yes. Yes. Who's, uh, whose history are you telling? Isn't it? How about then lightening up a little bit, I suppose? You've I got the story. Like Nobody's gone as deep as this. I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, you, well, once, once you had the idea for the story for Sophie, yes. I think is the essence of it anyway. Mm-hmm. And how did that story then get bound up with the thriller? And the thriller elements that you need, you know, the, the atmosphere, the pace, the reveals, the twists. Or is that all part of the process and the way it came together? I think it's storytelling, isn't it? I think, you yes. always, I think you've always got to have, in any book, even in literary fiction, I mean, it's funny, crime writers are so snobby about literary fiction, aren't we? <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's so boring, there's nothing that happens. But of course there's something that happens. There's suspense in every story. And I remember yes. I didn't used to know what suspense was. <laughs> what kind of writer does that make me? But I went to um, a crime fest years ago. I don't know if you were there. And uh, Lee Child was talking. Right. And this changed everything for me because he said suspense is the unanswered question. And you want to not answer it for as long as possible. Mm. It's like that little light bulb went up in my head at that moment. And so I think you've always got to have the dramatic question. You've always got to have the suspense. You've always got to have the reader on the hook. You can't not answer the question permanently. But every time you answer a question, my God, you've got to ask another one. Yes. So you have to do that. And that's pace, isn't it? That's ultimately mm. what pacing is all about. That's what keeps people turning the pages. Um, so I think I think a story, any story, any novel is like an onion. It's multi-layered. Yes. And yes. you've got you've got the emotional journey, which is what certainly, I mean, there's a there's a real emotional journey in this one. As we've talked about, it's a coming of age in that respect mm-hmm. as well. Uh, there's got to be the suspense. So in this case, is Matty a killer? Isn't he a killer? If he's not, who is? Um, why, why is, if he's not guilty, why is he in prison? Will the truth set Sophie free? Will it shovel the dirt on her more? I mean, it's all of those different things. And I think, you know, I suppose in a way I'm almost getting at how subliminal some of these things are for the writer, for you, the writer. It's funny, isn't it? Everyone's different for me. You know, I mean, obviously it's not a process where you wind up going back at the end and thinking, right, I need one of these in page 40 and I need one of those in page no, 60. but you do and... do retrospective fixes. Yeah, right. So, for example, if you put something in, you're like, actually, I need to have more. My husband has this term. I think it's genius. He's not even a reader and he comes up with this genius term. It's not fair. <laughs> but he talks about breadcrumbs. And he right. says, you always, if you have a solution at the end of, he will talk about programs, TV. It's not satisfying if you haven't had the breadcrumbs leading up to it. Yeah, right. And yeah. so now he's always on the lookout for breadcrumbs. And I was like, mm, that's slightly um, not necessary in the plot. So therefore, it's a breadcrumb. So where is it going to lead? Um, so, yeah, I think, sorry, I've lost my own train of thought. We're talking about subliminal. Just thinking about how how naturally this came, you know, or how, how much you... Came. Yes. So I think, so there, that's right, retrospective fixes we were talking about there. So, yes, there's always an element of retrospective fixing. Um, I think there's always an element as well of subliminal writing. I think as a storyteller, mm. there are some, I think there's a lot you can teach people about writing, but you can't necessarily teach them about storytelling. Some of it is just innate. Um, so it's why some people have a wonderful way with words 
aren't mm. storytellers. Um, but I plan, I plan a lot. Um, I always change slightly. So I always have yeah. what, I have, what I call a roadmap and I stop along the way at, at, at um, viewpoints. And I, I think, so I factored a lot of it in. I would look over my plan. I would see where suspense was missing in the plan because I could almost read my plan as if I were reading a novel. Does that make sense? Because I knew where I was going with it. It does, it does. But of course, you made this point, and this is really important about the book, is that it's a very emotional book. So it's about the emotional story that's carried at the heart of it. Yes. And these things, how they fit into it, and do they fit in comfortably? And they do. Mm. How worked that is, I suppose. How worked. For me, it wasn't, actually. That's I think what, what I was, was worked. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's interesting. It's funny, because you ask me questions, it's making me ask myself questions. That's why I can't answer them straight away. Um, so I think in answer, trying to answer your question, I think what I would call the technical side so the bones of the story, the, the suspense, that is planned. But somehow when you write it, the emotion, you're feeling it as you go. So yeah, yeah. you know, if you, if you get your character, you would get how they're feeling and you've got to have an arc. So I would know, I would know roughly a shape of the journey, emotional journey, where she would end up, how, you know, yes. you have the ups and the downs. But then you have it on a micro level as well, don't you? And that's that's got to be more innate. You're, you're writing it as, in that sense as I am when I'm, when I'm writing it. It's, it just comes through. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it, every book has to feel organic because mm. life's organic. And, and if you wind up with something that's clearly planned, it doesn't work at all. How much oh, planning do you actually that. do? You say that. Oh, I was on it, yeah. Diva on um, one of my On the Sofa shows. Yeah, yeah. And... He plans massively. I think he literally plans every single chapter. And his books are brilliant, aren't they? I mean, they're they're masterclasses in creating in, in crime writing. So I think I and, and I talk to a lot of people I have on, on the sofa actually, and they'll mm-hmm. all tell you different things about how they write. Yes, that's very but, true, of course. Yeah. So I don't think there is a writing wrong. I think it is what works for you. And that's important because it is a personal story. Maybe every story we write is personal. We're always putting a bit of our soul on the page, aren't we? Mm. Um oh. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, well, then how about sort of the sensitivity of the story? Mm. Um, we've, you made the point that this is the victim's story, yes. not the killer's story. And that yes. it's very clear that this is a, a new way of telling this kind of story in a sense, you know, and a, mm-hmm. a much more responsible way of telling this story. Mm-hmm. How consciously do you write that sensitivity? Um, because you still have to make the points. I mean, one of the things, for instance, that crops up is we know who the victims are of the killer. And we know their names. We know a little bit about them, but we don't see any silly, gruesome murder scenes. Or yeah. Um, so that was very conscious, and I was very aware that so many serial killer thrillers you read, it's oh, it's almost a reveling in the gore. Mm. I mean, almost as if the the writer is delighting and therefore celebrating the serial killer. And honestly, I don't enjoy that at all. I find it. Um, I find it gratuitous. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, if it's done in, you know, it can be done really, really well, and there are examples where it is. But often, oftentimes, it's 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 really not, and it upsets me actually because it's it's putting a spotlight in the wrong place. So I was really keen to to show it in a different way, mm. but I also didn't want to be nannyish about it. Yeah, right. But, so I didn't want to overdo it. I just wanted to shine the light in a different direction. Mm. And I wanted to name the killers. And it struck me, I was reading, um, I forget which book it is. It's one of the Catherine Ryan Howard books. And she's, in, in this book, they're, they're in a lecture hall learning about serial killers. Right. And um, the lecturer says, so, you know, how many serial killers can you all name? And they all put up their hands and they, you know, trot the names off. And then it says, okay, he says, how many victims can you name? 
and there's a silence. The silence. You can mm. name the victims. And it just struck me as, I mean, this isn't an original thing to say, but just terribly sad. No, but it, it is. It's absolutely a sign of how screwed up mm. society is. I mean, yeah. it's bizarre if you think about it. Go all the way back to Jack the Ripper. Yes. Why on earth? Now, in the 21st century, is Jack the Ripper a reference point that you could use if you landed in Delhi or you landed in New York? Yes. Everybody would instantly know yes. this tawdry, vicious little killer. Yes. And somehow he has a, a life way, way beyond. Yes, the victims. And, of course, um, in Five, that's something that... Mm. Um, uh, Sorry. Hallie, is it Hallie Rubenhold? Hallie Rubenhold, yes. There you go. Okay, um, and that's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant the way that she does mm. look at the victims like that. And, of course, that's something that we're now seeing reflected much more in crime fiction. Yes, yes. And, it, and it, as long as you get the emotional heart right, I think that's what makes it work. But it's also, this is a much better way of telling these stories. We don't need that, that instant gratification so. think, thing anymore. Do you think, though, do you think there's, I mean, there's patterns with everything, and, and we've talked about in the past with other authors' patterns in crime, mm. haven't we? And we know, I mean, we don't need to catalogue it, but the golden age and it leads to this and it leads to that. Now it's reflective of society. I wonder if there's a pattern in serial killer thrillers too, if we're now coming to a different point. We've done our bogeyman stories mm. and we're just moving on to something else. And if that's reflective of I think we are, but I hope that what's happened now is that we can't go back. I, mm. I hope that we don't go back. Well, basically the problem is always, it's not just serial killer ones, but it's where the victim is the MacGuffin. Yes. And that's a that's a horrible idea, you know. Yes, that, that's yeah. something that we I hope have seriously got away from, and it's why for me I think that crime mm -hmm. fiction is a far more it's the most progressive form of writing in a sense, mm -hmm. in that it explores these issues in society with equal gusto to what's described as literary fiction, if not more so, because it really tries to get into these issues of of what's going on in society, why are these yeah. things wrong, and hopefully without preaching. Right, so that's it. Yes, that's absolutely. That balance right, yeah. isn't it? But we do need to understand misogyny better. I mean, there's no more widespread crime than abuse and misogyny and, and mm -hmm. violence in the home. Mm. And yet it's something that was sort of glossed over as if it wasn't really relevant. I feel that that's changed. For many right? years. It yeah. has changed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, right, you're saying you're having a lot more female crime writers coming in now and being taken very seriously as well. So I think that's... That's good, but it's important, therefore, not to... I think that's why the glamorization of, of the killer is so wrong. Mm. But as you said, but that's not what you're doing, for sure, and that's not what modern uh, crime fiction does. Mm. But fortunately, I, I do think we're moving on from that a little bit, and I enjoyed Thomas Harris the same as everybody else did. We all but do. I don't take it seriously. But you know what? Harris is... I, he's actually one of my favourites. And mm. Yeah, I mean, of course... He I think he writes great, fast flowing stories but i think they're funny as well in truth i, I think they they're, they're a cobbled together kind of serial killer what they don't have is the emotional heart and they're not meant to i don't think but you know but brilliant in terms of you know psychology and yep. you know and, and characterization i mean is there a better character than hannibal lecter i mean he's just brilliant so much fun to read yeah absolutely um, yeah but he only managed to hit on that once i'm afraid yeah, I mean, did another where, novel. Where afterwards. do you go from that? I mean, look at mm. Harper Lee. Where do you go after to kill a mockingbird? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Go. Mind you, I suppose if you do that, you can rest on your laurels in that sense, can't you? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> when this book is as popular as Harper Lee and it's yes, up there on the sales, <laughs> you can just that? sit back and watch the rest of the world go by. <laughs> yes, exactly. um, but we've talked about how dark some of the subject is, mm. and and you convey that in the book, as we've said, but in a sensitive fashion. What's it like visiting those dark corners when you write? I mean, is it, is it, is it scary? Is it cathartic? Hmm. 
I think it's interesting. I remember Ian Rankin saying again at a crime fest, he said one of the reasons crime writers were so nice is because we get all that anger out on the page and we go to the <laughs> dark places in our minds so we don't have to do it in reality. So the safest it's, people to be around are you crime, crime writers? writers? Yeah, the people you know about the knives. <laughs> um, so maybe there is an element of that. But I think as well, you know, when you dream, you explore your fears. Mm-hmm. I wonder if um, for me, I can't speak for everybody, but I wonder if for me, that's what I'm doing on the page as well. And I said, you pour your soul a little bit into every book you're writing. And I think everything that we're writing is a reflection of what we're experiencing at the time. Mm. So I'm a mother, I was homeschooling my kids, and it was lockdown. I mean, in that sense, it was very, it was difficult for everybody, wasn't it? It was an awful time. Um, But motherhood, what my responsibility was to my children, the impact of the world they were suddenly finding themselves in, how that was going to affect them, was all at one level of my mind. Yes, I see. I and see. actually, I mean, I've only just thinking about this now, mm. but if you think about the themes I'm exploring in Truly Darkly Deeply. You can directly import that can, experience, yeah. yeah, that feeling. You don't do that consciously, do you? And mm. so that, when you talk about subliminal, um, the subliminal nature of writing, I think there is that part of it, isn't there? There is just what is in our subconscious. And, you know, oftentimes I'll, I'll have, like I said, I always have a map of where my stories are or, you know, what the next chapter is going to be. And by the way, when I say a map, I have a couple of lines about what I need to cover in that chapter. <laughs> very detailed map reading. We talked about my geography. Um, <laughs> but it always, as soon as I know, it's almost, it's not a clear of consciousness, but it feels like that. It just flows. And that is the subliminal taking over, isn't it? So mm. it's a marriage of the two, maybe. You did think about changing the subject completely now, actually, but you did think about writing this book set in Massachusetts or Boston. Um, but it's actually set in London. Why London? Well, it is also set in Massachusetts, actually. So it opens uh, yeah, yeah, in fair point. Yes, so she yes. moves. So the daughter moves. Mm. Um, and actually that was, but you're right to raise that as a point because it's key, is this idea of outsiderhood. So mm. this idea that she was, she was moving and how difficult it is to move. And of course, later that impacts on other things for her as well. Yes. And yes. you know what we're talking about, personal stuff? We were contemplating a move to Massachusetts a right. while back. So there you go. That came in there. <laughs> So it was all part of it, yeah. It was all part of it, yeah. Things you What's don't realise you're putting into your books, actually. My gosh, I'm talking to you now. I think, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, it's kind of like we're two ends of a scale, you know. You you put this stuff into the book, and it's kind of my job to weed it out, you know, find out what it is, but isn't work it through it. And I remember when I was doing A-Level, and they were talking about, you know, if you can read something into a book, even if the mm. author didn't know that's what they were doing, if you can see it, it's there. Mm. So it's, I think I, I did have that with Henry Porter. There were yeah. two characters and there was a link between them. And yeah. he said, he said, Oh, I never thought of that. He said, but I must have done. And of course that's yeah. the answer. It's not me being clever. It was him. It was there. He no, just he hadn't then thought clever, about it afterwards. Reading between the lines. And isn't that the wonderful thing about readers is that's what we do. We don't. Mm. Ju- and that's the difference with television watching. You cannot read between the lines. Well, it's hard at my husband probably because of his silly yeah. breadcrumbs, but um, you know, it's, it's much harder, but the, yeah, because I mean, you're being like, given a version. Yes, you're being just presented with some interpretation. Mm. But the wonderful thing to me about reading, what I love about it, the joy, is there's a, a contract, a relationship with the writer. Mm-hmm. So they are putting, when I write something about a character, it's almost by telepathy, I'm putting that into your mind. Mm-hmm. But it's not going indirectly, so it's filtered through mm-hmm. a part of you. So... I might see a character, if I haven't described what they look like, but it's the character itself, you will sort of imagine them in a certain way. 
and that will be based on your life experiences yeah, and your areas. so it's every every reader will read a book differently yeah. But it's also a little bit more complex than that, because as we said, this is a very emotional story. And when you get inside the characters, what you're also doing is is thinking it through from their point of view. So you're making the reader kind of re-examine what they know, mm. not not just in those physical things, but also in these these mental explorations as well, which is really fascinating. Mm. I think that's what any book though does. I mean, a satisfying. It does book. if it's done right, and that's how we know whether it's a good book or a bad book. You'll get mm-hmm. an emotional truth out of it. If you don't get that, then you've been reading something that's fluffy or yeah, just, just nothing. Do you find as well? I think one of my marks of a good book is if I can't read something else straight away afterwards, I have to yes. almost have a mourning yeah. period. Yeah, you've got those. The questions just keep popping around. Yeah, you need time to let it all settle, don't you? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Okay, then talking about other books and next books, what are you working on now? Because I know that you... What am I working on now? Yeah. Um, I've actually had to hit pause, Paul, because um, at this moment of recording, Truly Darkly is coming out in a week, just over a week, so hence the teeth chattering bit. Um, And I I wrote to my editor and I said, I'm so distracted, I can't focus. Mm. Um, And it wasn't that I couldn't write, of course I can write, but when I write... I always describe it as swimming. It's like I have to swim underwater into the book. I right, have to completely immerse myself in it. Like I was saying, I go to bed thinking about it. I yes, wake up yes, yeah, you did, yeah. shower thinking about it. And I was, and I was thinking about truly darkly deeply and who was going to find my book. And um, that's a bit distracting. But in answer to your question, um, I'm very excited by it. I'll be more excited by it when this book is out, truly darkly deeply is out. I can actually go back to writing. Um, it is... Um, inspired partly by Charles Manson so again there's ah, um right. true crime and um it's it's thinking about how far we go for love but not necessarily to save it could <clears> also <throat> be in a negative direction um it's I'm trying to think what to say without giving it too much away it's it's a it's a book about um friendship and toxic friendship and uh it asks the question, what would drive seemingly normal girls to murder right. their best friend? I think that's really interesting because what you tend to get with Manson's story is the, the demonization of everything. Mm. And it, it doesn't allow for any real truth behind those characters. Exactly. And yeah. in this case, again, I'm not looking at it directly. So like Truly Dark, you deep, mm. in a way, you're looking at it from the corner of your eye because you're looking through the child's perspective. In this case, I'm looking at it from a sister's perspective. So why didn't she see what was happening? What could she have done to stop things? Could she have saved um, the, the character in question? Yes, right. And so on. So it's, and again, it's two timelines, um, but very much true crime orientated as well. Mm. Uh, would you make a recommendation for a book? I, you know, it could be related to that, or it could be related to something that got you fired up with Truly Darkly Deeply, or just something you read, in fact, of course. What well, a recommendation for readers. Let's see. Well, I always talk about Vine Street, so I think I should probably think of something different. Yeah, well, we both love that book. I told you the other day, I think um, my father read it and he thought it was a great book. He loves this character, Geats. Yes, I love it. Um, I'm looking at my bookshelves. I read a book recently called Those Who Return, um, and I'm too short-sighted to see who it was by, and I'm rubbish um, at remembering names. I can help you there because I've got a copy here. So it's it's Cassandra Montag. And it was set in... There you go, my geography is letting me down again. It was set somewhere in America, let's say, where yes. I imagine it was red sands and, and slightly remote Nebraska, possibly. Um, and the 
the, this is ironic now me saying the place is as much a character in the book <laughs> oh dear I can't say that at all can I but it was very clever and it was psychological and creepy and to me it's had something of Thomas Harris about it right um, and it was just it was a character's journey as well in some respects it was different treatment there was a mystery at the heart of it but in many ways it wasn't about the mystery it was about our um, perception of outsiders and how we judge them um, and how we can save ourselves I think it was a good book I really really enjoyed that Right. Well, um, as you know, I'll put that in the program notes so people can check them out anyway. Yeah, I, do, do. It's I, I think it's interesting to make suggestions like that. Yes, I think so. And um, yeah, it was, it, my editor, Steve uh, Beerworth from Quirk has worked on it as well. So that's why I was given a copy and right. I very much enjoyed it. Yeah. What about the podcasts? Are you enjoying those? Yes. particularly Not this one, the ones you do people. yourself. I mean... <laughs> Well, we do some together, of course, don't we? We so do we indeed. We do our heads together, heads of course. Together yeah. with Barry, for sure, as well. So I always look forward to those. And we'll be doing some more specials for um, the uh, festivals, of course. We will. Got one we coming have... up for Bloody Scotland. Bloody Scotland. And... and you'll be doing some stuff at Capital Crime that we're perhaps not going to tell people about just at this moment. Yeah, we'll finalized. save that one. But we did one for, um, you'll have to pronounce this because my Welsh is not as good as yours. Will Crime Cymru. That's right. We did that. And that was fabulous. So I really enjoy doing those with you guys. And I also, of course, do on the sofa, mm. which is different to yours, because, of course, you do one-on-one -on -one author um, chats, whereas mine is more of a panel-type show, and we get into themes. Do you? Let me ask you this, because obviously we do it a different style. I ask questions mm. because I want to get inside the book and so on. Mm. Like, But you actually have more general topics. Mm. But, of course, you get to the heart of issues as well, just the same way. Do you kind of use it to learn about other authors and to learn about things about writing personally for for yourself interesting again maybe that's why i pick some of the topics i do maybe because i'm particularly interested in that area maybe. as well but also i try to be led by what um our listeners are telling us and we're so lucky aren't we we built up a huge listener base really really quickly um and um hearing from them how much they've enjoyed the show and the sort of things they want to to hear about it's it is nice a great to get driver. that feedback. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been amazing, hasn't it? It's been a great journey. Yeah, Paul, can you believe that? On the sofa and... Um, oh, yeah, just over a year. Crikey. Crime Time FM storming. <laughs> You're coming towards the end of season two? Yes, indeed. Yeah, we'll be, uh, when we've got season three already nearly wrapped, so we're, we're doing all right, aren't we? Yeah, I know. That's the bit that upsets me. You're so bloody organised when it comes down to it. You get it. <laughs> Yours are done. I'm doing mine last minute and you're doing yours. Year, well, year I've now listened to your questions. No wonder you have to put all this time into them. I don't know. <laughs> hours. <laughs> oh, well. Um, one last question then. And it's something that did come from the book. Um, it's basically, no matter how terrible your story is. <laughs> don't say that. Are you talking about your, No, 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 no. no. it was a terrible right. book. <laughs> <laughs> Let me rephrase that because you, you rightly point out that doesn't sound good. <laughs> No matter how bad the character's life and story is okay. in the book, <laughs> um, do you believe that there's always this possibility that you can write your own ending? Do you mean as a character you always have? Yes, well, I do. A, you know, I mean, and that as it transfers into real life, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, we talked about sort of the darkness of the book, but there's a lot of courage and there's a lot of resilience yeah. and, and spirit yeah. in the book too, isn't there? Absolutely. I'm an optimist at heart. I try to be an optimist at heart. Uh, during lockdown, I was less an optimist. Um, well, we all were, weren't we? We all were. Um, 
So yes, I do believe we can turn our lives around. I think it's harder for some people and in certain situations, obviously. Um, but I believe I believe where there's a will, there's a way. I read it. Mm. It's a wonderful book I read, Paul, called A Man's Search for Reason. It's It was actually a turning point book for me. This is not crime. Right. It was uh, Viktor Frankl. And he's a... Oh, a, right. Yeah, yeah. Have you read it? It's, it's incredible. And what he does is he takes the worst moments in, of course, we can debate what it is, but the worst moment in human history. And, and, mm-hmm. and that was the Holocaust. Uh, I think a few would argue with that. Mm-hmm. And he says, even in the Holocaust, amidst all the horrors, there was the opportunity for exactly what you say yes. to have the will to survive. And what mm-hmm. he says, the will to survive comes out of having a reason for being. So the people in the Holocaust who had a reason to struggle, and my God, it was a struggle, obviously. Yes, no, the, the most terrible, unimaginable things. God, you can't. And I think almost to try and imagine it is maybe an insult to people with that. Mm. But, you know, to struggle through every day, but to keep struggling and not to mm. go to the wire, those were the people who did ultimately survive, be it because they wanted to bear witness, be it because they were determined to see their family again. And of course, many of them still didn't. But that reason to keep going is what, what, basically meant they survived. So I think, yes, in answer to your question, I think if we want and hope for something enough and believe enough in ourselves, mm. most of us, I I hope, and I hope it's not, look, I'm very comfortable and I'm sitting in my nice home and everything. No, no, I, I know what you mean. It's easy yeah. to sort of sound blasé about it, but mm. it's not so much that because obviously everybody will need a certain amount of help and a certain of amount course. of tools in the right place at the of right course. time mm-hmm. or you won't. But let's mm-hmm. leave it on that you know, which is really a fantastic note about the spirit of humanity. And it is yes. important, again, in the context of your book. But it's about mm. that that phenomenal will to survive, mm. that spirit, which is mm. just fantastic. Just not to be beaten. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Victoria, that's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on your show. <laughs> well, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Victoria. It was a real pleasure chatting about Truly Darkly Deeply. And of course, as a friend, I have high hopes for Truly Darkly Deeply in the States. So Truly Darkly Deeply is available in paperback from Union Square and Company on the 27th of June and should be available through all good book outlets. If you want to get it from us, you can click the link on the program notes and that'll take you through to either a UK or a US outlet where you can order the book and it's clear which is which. And if you want to know more about Victoria's fascination with serial killers, you can listen to her shows with Mark Olshaker, the creator of Mindhunter, which went out last July, or her one-on-one on the sofa with Jeffrey Deaver, which went out in December. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe with your favourite podcast provider. That's very useful for us. And I'll be back very shortly with another interview. But for now, bye and thank you very much for listening.